This episode is sponsored by me. As this very special episode with Seth Godin is all about the important superpower of empathy, the stars really aligned for me to finally announce something that I've been working toward for the past two plus years, something that will help you grow in your empathy levels. I'm calling it the One Week to Strong Empathy Challenge, and I want to give it to you for free. Well, in exchange for your email address, uh, of which by the hammer of Grabthar, I will never compromise. Be sure to visit userdefenders.com slash empathy to learn more. I don't think you have to be in a wheelchair to design a hotel room that someone in a wheelchair can use. And that person who designed the hotel room may not care about you one bit. They might just be a professional. And to be a professional means to act as if. I'm arguing that if you're a professional, it's your job. The ditch digger's job is to dig a ditch, and your job is to act as if. And if you can 100% fake the empathy, that's as good as actually being empathetic as far as I'm concerned. Welcome to the User Defenders Podcast, where we interview UX superheroes who fight for the users in order to inspire and equip you to do the same. And now, here's your host, Jason Ogle. Greetings, User Defenders. Welcome to this very special episode. Today, I had the immense and unforgettable privilege of speaking to one of my marketing and UX superheroes, Seth Godin. I bet those of you familiar with Seth never expected to hear his name associated with UX. Well, as far as I remember, UX stands for user experience. And this man has created massive amounts of user experiences that have made any of us who've paid attention to his work and ideas much better creators and humans. In this episode, we talk all about the important subject of empathy, which is a running theme throughout his brand new, remarkable book, This Is Marketing, now available anywhere books are sold and linked up at the show notes at userdefenders.com slash sethgodin. We'll hear Seth tell an amazing story from the book about empathy that really impacted the way he looks at marketing, as well as how to stay indispensable in our work in an artificially intelligent world in a way I've never heard him answer that question before, and much, much more. This was an amazing, enlightening experience for me, and I have strong convictions that it will be for you too. So let's jump right into my inspiring interview with marketing legend and icon, Seth Godin. Seth Godin is the author of 18 books that have been bestsellers around the world and have been translated into more than 35 languages. He's also the founder of the Alt-MBA and the Marketing Seminar, online workshops that have transformed the work of thousands of people. He writes about the post-industrial revolution, the way ideas spread, marketing, quitting, leadership, and most of all, changing everything. You might be familiar with his books, Lynchpin, Tribes, The Dip, and Purple Cow. In addition to his writing and speaking, Seth has founded several companies, including Yoyodyne and Squidoo. His blog, which you can find by typing Seth into Google, is one of the most popular in the world. In 2018, he was inducted into the Marketing Hall of Fame. His latest book, What to Do When It's Your Turn, is now in its fifth printing, and his new book, which we're talking about today, This Is Marketing, comes out this November 2018. A fun fact about Seth is he did the first generation UX for educational computer games in 1983 when dinosaurs ruled the earth. Welcome to User Defenders, Seth. I am super excited to have you on the show today. Well, thanks for having me. This is something I think about all the time, and it's a privilege to talk to you. Oh, well, thank you so much, Seth. And UX for early computer games, that is fascinating to me. I, I started in the 80s when, on an Apple II, and some of the games, I think it was all DOS-based. Can you talk about that a little bit, what that was like, creating UX for early computer games? Well, in 1980 or so, uh, two guys named Bill and David started a company with $10 million from Harvard Venture Fund that um, saw that the Apple II, the Commodore 64, the TI machine, eventually the PC Junior, would become platforms in the home for parents to educate their kids. And their mission was to do the opposite of what we're seeing now, which is manipulating people into spending more time. Their mission was to bring uh, a popular 
vision of how a kid could interact with a computer in a package that people could buy at Leechmere or Target or Kmart. And they hired me at 24 in 1983, I was one of their brand managers. So I found myself working with the first generation of professional computer game designers. You may have played some of our games like Kids on Keys or Fraction Fever. Uh, and then I co-created the first generation of graphic adventure games. So after Infocom had succeeded with uh, Zork, we were the people who developed games with Ray Bradbury and Arthur C. Clarke to have people be able to play games with pictures and music uh, this is in 1985. And there's a whole bunch of problems you need to solve that no one had ever thought about before. For example, uh, there's something in a computer called a parser, which is a program that lets you type in words and have it sort of understand what you're saying. So pick up the axe and throw it at the dwarf. Well, if no one's ever used a parser before, how do you teach them in that moment what they can type? Because if they think it understands the entire language of English, they're going to be frustrated. So every single day, it was a user interface conversation about, well, no one's ever done this before. How do we teach them how to do it? Right. That's crazy. Yeah, it's, the field has come a long way since then. But that's really cool that uh, you were there right at the beginning of kind of trying to figure some of this stuff out. So I'm going to throw you a curveball out the gate. Uh, I know our main topic today is empathy. Um, and, I, and I know this is going to be super, super enlightening and valuable. You're known as someone who thinks about and obviously writes a lot about the marketing of ideas in uh, like a post-industrial connection economy of the digital age. And you're here, as Mordecai would say, at such a time as this. What if Seth Godin existed during the Industrial Revolution and you wrote a book, what would it be about? Oh, I probably would have written Scientific Management by Frederick Taylor if I could have. Uh, Frederick Taylor changed the world with a book uh, inspired by Henry Ford and the work he did as a consultant, which was simple, which is if you owned a factory, you should use a stopwatch. And you should use that stopwatch to measure all of the inputs into the stuff you make. Because when you add up the cost of materials and the cost of time, now you know how much it costs you to make that item. So by using the stopwatch, what Henry Ford was able to do was drive the cost of a car from $6,000 to $600. And that shift enabled him to basically corner the market on cars, but also to put cars into the hands of the masses, all because of one idea that fueled how we go forward in an economy based on industrialism. And so what I've tried to do, I have no delusions of Frederick Ta's uh, grandeur, but what I've tried to do is put a similar bunch of ideas into the world that make sense after the Industrial Age. And so I think that they're the same sort of thing that Taylor was talking about, which is, can we measure the inputs and can we do a better job and not waste them? And the mistake that so many people who do UI so many people who build software, so many people who market make, is they think that attention is cheap and they can burn it. And I've learned the hard way over 30 years, it's precious and you should never burn it. Hmm. I love that. Your, your new book, which is incredible, by the way, it's called This is Marketing. And it's really rooted in empathy, and that is a, a big topic for me. I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for empathy, and I strongly believe that any great product that exists today and that will exist in the future is going to be rooted in empathy in serious consideration of those on the other end using it. So um, I, I really want to kick this off with just kind of talking about empathy. And I think that's going to be a theme throughout this, this conversation. Um, but I love the tagline uh, on your book. It's, you can't be seen until you learn to see. I love that a lot. Seth, how do you define empathy? Well, it's surely not sympathy. I think instead mm. it's recognizing that no one believes what you believe, no one knows what you know, and no one wants what you want. And if you can be okay with that, as opposed to insisting that you are right and they are wrong, then you have a chance to go where they are. Now, we don't go where people are because we're humble. 
We go to people where people are because we have no choice. We have no choice because if we don't go to where they are, they will ignore us. And that didn't used to be the case. That's certainly not the case in middle school. In middle school, the middle school teacher has compliance on his side. He can demand obedience. And the standardized test and grades and threats all push us to live in a world where the teacher doesn't necessarily have empathy for us. But it's interesting to note that great teachers, the ones we remember, we remember because they used empathy even though they didn't have to. And my point is, unless you work for the latest monopoly of the moment, you know, the Microsoft of this year, you can't demand that the user do what you want and that the user see what you see. You have to go to them, for them, to help them get to where they want to go. That's so good. And I think about some of my favorite designers that I've studied, like in one of the reasons I love doing this show is the designs that are rooted in empathy, like that have had the biggest impact on people that I've heard about, like MRI designer, Doug Dietz, who designed the discovery MRI for children right. who, uh, you know, were ter- terminal diseases. I'm sure you're familiar with that, sure. um, that story. That's the only designer I've ever seen literally cry every time he talks about his design. And, and the impact that it's made. And, and you can see the videos and, uh, and I get choked up every time I think about it. Um, but I, I love stories like that. And, and, and even, you know, Margaret Hamilton, who was a programmer on the Apollo Saturn missions, she had so much empathy for uh, the, the astronauts up there. And so she made subroutines that would, would continue to work whenever the, the systems were overloaded. I mean, we didn't have, you know, obviously very smart chips back then. So she was smart enough and empath- empathic enough to, to consider that in her programming and that's actually what helped Paul 11 moon landing possible and so I love stories like that why is empathy important in doing great work well um, I, I can't help but resist to insert that there was another Margaret Hamilton the woman who played the wicked witch in the Wizard of Oz who hmm. also transformed that product that movie because she had a little kid at home and she was most of the actors on that movie just showed up and read their lines. They were vaudevillians. But Margaret Hamilton had a big voice in how that movie was made because she knew that her kid was going to see the movie. And that shift of accepting responsibility is at the core of the message I'm trying to share here. That, Mm. you know, I'm in the Direct Marketing Hall of Fame and um, my dad, who passed away a few years ago, was harassed as an elderly man by people who were selling uh, coins, fake collectible coins by phone, preying on senior citizens, calling them, befriending them, taking their money. And this company that did it was a member of the Direct Marketing Association. So I called up the people who run the DMA and a couple letters from you know their general counsel got this company to back off on my dad. The question is, why are they doing it at all? Of all the things you could make, of all the things you could do, why did you decide that the way you're going to make a living is by ripping off 75-year-olds, 80-year-olds who have nothing to do at home? How do you go to work in the morning? That this model, this Ayn Randian, if it's legal, then I have the right to do it mindset, is just ridiculous. And, and I think it cannot stand, it certainly cannot stand scrutiny that marketing is a privilege, that what we do as marketers is we make change happen. If there is no change, there is no successful marketing. All marketers do is they change people's state, they change their behavior. So that's something you get to choose. What change are you choosing to make? So please don't tell me it's just your job. Please don't tell me your boss made you do it. You have a choice. If you're going to use this incredibly powerful tool, then you better be responsible for what you do. Wow. Absolutely. And that's been a, a, a theme throughout all of your work really is how are we serving people through marketing instead of, you know, like shouting at them and, and bothering them and, and everything. So I, I, I love that story. Um, you know, and in addition to, well, and, and by the way, Seth, I'm sorry about your dad. I'm sorry to hear about your dad. He sounded like an amazing man. He was. Thank you. Yeah. Um, what's your greatest, most impactful story of empathy in action that you could tell us today? 
Well, you know, the thing about stories is their only purpose is to resonate with the listener. So there are stories that have resonated with me, but they're not necessarily going to resonate with other people. So what Nike does for a living is it tells stories about people who just happen to be wearing their stuff. But the stories aren't about Nike. The stories are about the athlete who has done something that inspired the person who saw that story. And if you grew up in a certain place in a certain way, you might be inspired by a Michael Phelps story. But if you grew up in a certain way in a certain day, you might be instead inspired by a story of a paraplegic athlete. My point is that stories that inspire me tend to be stories from the nonprofit world, for example. But those aren't stories that are going to inspire everyone. Uh, I did a, a bunch of work with Acumen, still do, that works to fund and support businesses that do business with the poorest people on earth. These are people who make $3 a day. And I think it's impossible for any of us to imagine what it's like to make $3 a day. But one of the things that's essential that I've learned so profoundly from the companies there that I've tried to help is that people who make $3 a day don't like shopping. Shopping is a threat. Shopping is not a sport. Shopping means that you're going to buy something you've never bought before. That's what shopping is. It's not replenishment. It's let's go shopping. And in the privileged world, if you make a mistake when you're shopping, you'll still go shopping again tomorrow. That's part of the magic of shopping. It's that addictive cycle. But if you make $3 a day and you make a mistake shopping, someone in your family isn't going to eat dinner tonight. Someone's not Mm. going to get the medical care they need. Someone might die. And getting your arms around the idea that when you show up to sell a solar lantern in a little village with no electricity, people aren't welcoming you with open arms. Even though the solar lantern is demonstrably better and cheaper than a kerosene lantern, even though the solar lantern can charge your cell phone, even though the solar lantern will pay for itself in 90 days, if you've never used a solar lantern, if your parents and grandparents didn't have a solar lantern, the solar lantern salesperson is not a messiah. They're a threat. Because now you either have to deal with the loss of status that will come from not buying it, or you have to deal with the fear that will come from buying it. And so what we discover is that having empathy for that customer doesn't mean don't make solar lanterns. It doesn't mean don't show up to sell them. It means look for the fear. Understand the tension. Get a hard look at the status dynamic, the affiliation, and the dignity, because that is what's on offer not an electric light. Hmm. Brene Brown said sympathy is feeling for and empathy is feeling with. And she tells a neat story in her power of vulnerability about um, sympathy is seeing your friend fall in the hole and saying like, oh, what are you doing down there? You know, sorry, sorry this happened to you. And then empathy is actually getting in the dang hole with your friend and then sharing your perspective, but knowing it's not your hole and helping that person get out. And uh, I, I love the story in, in your new book about Vision Spring, Seth. And I think it's a nice kind of segue from what you just shared. Can you tell that story? Well, here's the, the opportunity, the challenge, the possible. Uh, there are perhaps a billion people on earth who need reading glasses, who are alive longer than anyone expected, and they hit 45 and they need reading glasses. And if you are someone who weaves silk for a living, you are now unemployed because you cannot see the thread. And not only are you unemployed, but for the next 10 or 20 years, you're going to be a burden on your family. So if we can get you a pair of reading glasses, that could change everything. Well, what VisionSpring does is they are a scalable enterprise in the sense that they buy reading glasses in China for two bucks and they sell them in Costa Rica and India and other places for three bucks. That dollar in profit pays for the transport, for the salespeople, for the scaling. So as a result, there are now millions of people around the world who have reading glasses because Vision Spring sold them a pair. That is more sustainable than just giving them away. It also 
gives the person you're seeking to serve the power in the relationship, which is the power to say no, the power to say, I don't like this, the power to say, I don't want this. And by empowering the consumer, you make your product better. So I went with Vision Spring and we're in this little village and it's 105 degrees out and it's noon. And at noon, when it's 105 degrees out, everyone's at home. There's nothing else to do. Hmm. And so we're in the center of the village and so we're the entertainment for the day. And these folks come out, mostly men. Uh, They're wearing the traditional Indian work shirt, which is a, a beautiful white embroidered shirt with a pocket on the front. And I can see through the pocket that people have money in their pocket. So even though these customers make $3 a day, they have cash. I can also see that they're 50 years old. So I know from rudimentary biology that they need glasses. And I can also see that most of them don't have them. Also, their friends do have them, which means that glasses are not a newfangled technology There are no batteries or user manuals, and they are aware that glasses have helped others. So we show up, we set up a booth, and we have one table with 10 gift-wrapped, beautiful, uh, not gift-wrapped, shrink-wrapped glasses, all different styles. And on the other table, we have a sample pair of glasses and a reading chart. And the reading chart works for people who don't um, speak English or speak uh, Tamil. It doesn't require literacy. And so someone sits down and they hold the reading chart. They can't see anything. They can't read it. We hand them the sample glasses and they can read. So there's no Mm. doubt that the glasses work. Mm. And then we say, please, come over to this other table and uh, you can pick whatever kind of glasses you want. We're giving you the dignity and respect to pick your own style. They're $3. And I was astonished to discover that about two-thirds of the people left without buying a pair of glasses. Mm. And I'm standing there sweating in the heat. Some people say I'm good at marketing. What am I not seeing? Why is it, with all the things I just told you, that two-thirds of the people aren't buying a pair of glasses that they know they need and that they have money to pay for? And after an hour... I almost had a stroke sitting outside in the heat. After an hour, (laughs) I changed one thing and I doubled the sales rate. Mm. And that one thing was based on empathy and user design. And the one thing I changed was I took all 10 samples and I put them away. So now there weren't 10 styles to choose from. There was just a pair of sample glasses. And when you put them on and you could see Then we said to you, do they work? And if you said yes, we said, okay, which would you prefer? You can give us back your glasses or you can give us $3. And that sentence doubled the rate of sales. Why? Because give us back your glasses is about fear of loss. You have something, do you want to give it up? That's not shopping. That's defending what's yours. And by eliminating shopping from the experience, we served the people we sought to serve, and it transformed the way that Vision Spring was able to do their work. I love that story. I always say empathy is a choice that becomes easier to make the more we practice it. The problem is not many of us know exactly how to practice it. It's not like we were given an instruction manual at birth or found one in the desert like the greatest American hero on how to harness what is, in my opinion, the most important superpower we could and can possess, unless you're Dexter. And if we can't practice something, how can we ever expect to get better at it? That's where my one week to strong empathy challenge comes in. I have been working toward this for over two years and especially scrambling these past couple of months to get ready for you, knowing that Seth Godin, someone who's taught me a ton about empathy, was going to be on the show talking all about. Here's how it works. You'll get one email a day from me for seven days, each with their own unique challenge that if completed is guaranteed to increase your empathy levels toward other humans and thus consequently the quality and depth of your work output for other humans. You, your work, the amazing people around you and eventually our world will be better for it. I promise you. 
So go ahead, rise to the challenge at userdefenders.com slash empathy. So from 10 samples to one, Apple, are you listening? <laughs> well, it's interesting because what Steve did um, when he came back from Next was he canceled 80% of their products. Yeah. Because he was, he said, this product is a status-based product, and it's one where we are trying to demonstrate that we have good taste. And by offering people choices, instead we were saying to those people, you know what you want. But Apple has never been about you know what you want. Apple is about we have better taste than you. And if you want to be like us, pay us some money. It's funny you talk about status, uh, and and there's a lot of reflections in the book about that too, and and how um, you know a lot of times we'll we'll buy things just for the status, even though we, even if we can't afford it, you know, like uh, there's that that quote about how we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. Um, you know, we, we do that. And it was funny how you mentioned the, the Porsche Cayenne. Uh, you kind of cited that as an example that the, there's no conceivable utility proportionate to the expense and it's a status symbol. And, and it just made me remember that my first Uber ride was in a Porsche Cayenne, <laughs> which kind of surprised me. I was like, what? This is kind of cool. I was like, well, I'm kind of impressed that Uber like drivers drive such a, a nice car because you hear Porsche and you immediately think, oh, luxury, expensive and, and everything. But then I started thinking about it after I read, I was reading your book, I started thinking about it. I was like, he's an Uber driver because he has a Cayenne. <laughs> he, probably, he probably has to drive to pay to make the car payments. And he probably probably has several other jobs. I think I remember him saying he had several other jobs too. And I just, I just don't know if that's worth that. Well, so now we get back to empathy. I disagree that the Cayenne has no utility. It has a lot of utility, and the utility is it makes your neighbors feel small, and it makes you feel bigger than your neighbors. That is something that might be worth paying for. So years ago, I was in Sydney, Australia, and they had just opened Uber, and I called an Uber, and a 1932 Cadillac limousine pulled up. Oh, my God. And so I talked up the driver, and it turns out Uber was paying him triple to drive this car around. Why would they do that? They did it because if you arrived in a 1932 Cadillac limo, your status went up. So they positioned Uber as a choice for smart people who could afford it, not as a cheaper alternative because status is a simple idea. Who eats lunch first? And who eats lunch first goes all the way back to the oasis and the hippos and the rhinos and the giraffes. Who eats lunch first is deep, deeply ingrained in us, way more deeply ingrained than what the left mouse button does. And so when we offer people a route toward the status they seek, they'll consider taking it. Seth, have you ever had to learn empathy the hard way? Like, is there a story they can tell us about where you didn't show empathy and afterward wished you had, like, you could click the left button for the undo? Oh, every day. Is there something something that stands out and maybe even more recent? Well, you know, I read this, um, the, the, the original host of The Tonight Show um, used to go into the audience and do uh, improv. So he'd do his opening monologue and then he'd engage with different people in the audience. Uh, Steve Allen. And he was pretty good at it. And one day, he's up there doing his monologue and he notices there's this woman in the second row who's not applauding. So he turns up the house lights and he decides he's going to engage with her about her the fact that she wasn't applauding. And, only, and this is a live TV. And only after the cameras were trained on the woman did he realize that she had been born without two arms. Oh, gosh. And so it's not about him. It was about her. But his lack of care for who she might be haunted him for the rest of his life. And that story made a huge impact on me. Well, I heard it when I was like 18 or 19 because I was always you know, engaging with whatever committee or crowd I was in front of sort of arrogantly pronouncing my view correct. And so the lesson for me is if someone's treating you a certain way, 
it's almost certainly because of what happened to them yesterday or this morning or a week ago or a year ago. And if you were in their shoes, if you knew what they knew, if you believed what they believed, you might be just as ornery as they are. So the opportunity is to reestablish what people like us do. Because people like us do things like this. This is the essence of our culture. And so if we can engage with other people where they are, we're going to get more done than if we insist that they are wrong. Wow. Yeah, I always say empathy is a choice that becomes easier to make the more we practice it. What's your best advice for us in building our empathy levels for fellow humans, especially the ones we're trying to serve? A lot of the time we have trouble with empathy because we're afraid. And, you know, it's very hard to uh, be a lifeguard if you're wearing heavy boots. Because as soon as you jump in the water, you start sinking And so it's really difficult for you to offer help to the person who's drowning. That what it means to be a lifeguard is A, you need to find someone who wants to get rescued, and B, you have to have enough confidence in where you are that you can help them. And if you can't find that confidence, then you should probably seek a smaller audience. I love that theme in the book about quit trying to be all things to all people and and trying to get everybody to clap. Obviously, in that case, there was an accessibility issue that he didn't see because he didn't have the empathy to think about that beforehand. But but I, I love that message uh, in, in the book about just find the smallest audience and serve them well with your great ideas and, and word will get out and as it needs to. And so I, I just really love the reinforcement of that message uh, in your book. Well, thanks. I think the key word is viable. The smallest audience is one person and you can't make it with one person. Part of the magic of Dropbox, part of the magic of classic Apple days is they were willing to say, there's a group of people big enough to support us who want X, Y, and Z. We will serve them. And if you are not one of those people, we understand. Good luck to you. It's not for you. And then over time, if you've built something that has a ratchet, it will spread. But you must identify a viable audience that you can live with. Given that you get 10 draft picks or 100 draft picks or 10,000 draft picks, who are the people that you will make you or break you? Just make it for them. Only them. I love that. Seth, you're, you're an incredible storyteller. And I don't know how you do it, but you always seem to have a story at the ready. And you've even in this interview so far, you just have those stories. And when teaching something and, you know, Muriel Rukeyser said the universe is made of stories, not atoms. You know, and since stories make the world go round and selling design through storytelling is an important part of the field. Do you have advice for the defenders listening on how we can become better storytellers? Well, a story is not um, once upon a time and a story doesn't even is not the same as an anecdote. So, you know, I've worked hard to create a collection of anecdotes, but a story says, I'm going somewhere. I'm going to go there using your vernacular. Do you want to come with me? And too often, engineers say, none of that matters. I have proof that I am right. And I'm a trained engineer, so I know that feeling. And it's not even arrogance. It's just wrong. Because maybe you think you're right, but in a different universe, a different invention would have happened, and I could show that you are not right. Right is an evanescent concept, that what we're looking for instead is useful. How can you do something that's useful based on who I am and where I am and where I want to go? I'm going to shift gears a little bit. We're still on the empathy subject, but uh, do you have an opinion on how our smartphone addictions are impacting our levels of empathy toward other humans? Oh, I'm sorry. I was just checking my Facebook. What was your question? (laughs) And I don't have Facebook, so it's okay. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I don't either. I just deleted mine recently. I don't like Mark Zuckerberg at all. Well, I'm not sure I dislike Mark. He grew up one town away from where I am right now, but- I dislike the business model 
the thing that people forget is if you're using a social network and you're not paying for it, you're the product, you're not the customer. And I think a lot of people are waking up to realize they didn't like being the product. And that's why I think paying for software is so important. You know, the, the thing is that human beings are capable of an enormous range of behaviors, more than any other species by far. And we get what we practice. So if you spend your time trolling people or you spend your time reading what the trolls are doing, that's what you're practicing. If you spend your time keeping track of how many people like you and don't like you, that's what you're practicing. And you get more of what you practice. So I think the intentional act of figuring out what we want more of is really important. And in the case of Facebook, the original idea was expanding beyond Dunbar's number and having a little bit of of knowledge on our radar of what the thousand people in our life are up to could have opened us up for more empathy. But what we did was we exhausted ourselves and it turned everybody into clickbait. And when you're viewing someone else's life in that swipe, swipe, swipe way, it's impossible to truly care about them because as soon as it gets too hard, you just swipe. You know, when we start just looking at everybody through the lens of our screens as other humans, I think, you know, you can't help but to kind of lose empathy. I mean, even the way we, you know, a lot of us, we text. And I love the technology. I love the convenience of it. But, I mean, how often is it so easy to be misunderstood through text, right? And the, your intent, your empathy. You can't see, you know, the person's face and and things like that. So it's, and, and I think you're right about it. Like, is this person hot? Swipe left. If they're not, swipe right kind of thing. It's It just feels like... I just, I have a, some strong opinions about it. I love tech. I, I'm kind of like, it's funny. I host a show about it, about design and tech, and I love it. But I also don't like where some of it's brought us uh, as well. I just don't think we were ever meant to have this kind of lens into other people's lives that we do. It just breeds a lot of discontentment and just feelings that we shouldn't really be feeling. So I, I'm glad Apple is, you know, I, I'm not, I don't know much about Android because I'm, I'm an Apple person, but I, I'm glad that they're kind of seeing that need and they added a new feature to their, their new uh, iOS that's uh, helping people to kind of monitor their activity a little more. So I'm glad to see their empathy uh, for that. And I think it's also in their best interest from a business perspective because, you know, if, if people are just constantly addicted, their behaviors are going to change. And I mean, they, you know, they want living customers to continue buying their products. So, yeah, I mean, we, I could rant about Apple all day. I'll just rant for two minutes. Uh, here we go. If Apple wanted to get rid of texting while driving, they could solve the problem in four minutes. They haven't done so because they are not run by leaders who care about people dying while texting and driving. They're run by people who care about the stock price. Apple changed my life when Guy Kawasaki brought me a Mac to beta test in 1983 when he was 25 and I was 23. Um, They changed my life again when uh, the user interface got even better and I could demonstrate stuff in print and on screen that was better than I thought I could. They changed my life again when they put a computer in my pocket. But a long time ago, they decided they're in a different business now. They're in the business of selling a luxury good where status is gained by having the latest item and using it a lot. Not to make your life better, but merely to gain a certain kind of status. So Apple has put the thing in that you're talking about, but they haven't done anything to key that in to your status, to your behavior, to your social networks. They also haven't invested at all in building the kind of mutually beneficial online connection that so many other companies are getting behind. So as somebody who has purchased more than 150 Macs in his career and who has been a fanboy since the very first day, uh, I got my first Mac, my Apple in 19, whatever it was, something. I'm so disappointed and I'm sort of bereft because there's no place good for me to go. Uh, but I hope that one day soon there will be. Hmm. I appreciate you sharing that, Seth. You said that Apple can solve the problem in four minutes. What can they do? Well, it's pretty simple. They know that you're moving, right? So if you were on a phone that is moving, then I can think of six six different ways that I could differentiate passengers from drivers. And if I'm a driver, it's just not going to work and there's no way to make it work. I have to pull over. That's not hard to do. And the fact is 
that the incremental change in our culture normalizes certain behaviors. I have a friend who wrote The History of Drunk Driving. And when you think about it, drunk driving has a history because first you needed cars. So we know when drunk driving first happened. And we know how it was an unchecked problem for 70 or 80 years that couldn't possibly hurt the status of someone who engaged in it. And we know how hard it was for Mothers Against Drunk Driving and others to try to stigmatize that behavior. Well, that's how our culture works. Someone puts a change into the world. Over time, we normalize it. We engage with it as part of our status. And then it gets really hard to undo the negative impacts of that change. And Apple's benefit is also their problem, which is they control the platform. And if you control the platform, I think you have to be responsible for what people do with the platform. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, and I appreciate the insight on that too. I think, uh, and I hope that that some of the right people hear that and maybe consider doing a little bit more because that is a big problem and it's not worth it. That's, that's the thing. It's just not worth it. Seth, the bots are coming. Um, nay, they're already here. You know, Many of the day laborer jobs that uh, we've known in the past and even creative jobs that we know today that many still depend on to provide for their families could possibly be going away and actually may. The, the, the likelihood is high. Your, your primary message in my favorite book of yours, Lynchpin, is all about staying indispensable in our work. Has the advent of AI and machine learning and automation changed your perception of what it means to be indispensable? If so, how? If not, how do we stay indispensable in our digital and ever-increasingly artificially intelligent world? That's a great question. You know, in 1917, I was on this podcast and they asked me about the jackhammer. <laughs> and they said, you know, the jackhammer is coming. What will that do to the people who have to dig up streets? And I point out that most people who dig up streets are saying, well, they'll just work harder at digging up streets and they're not worried about the jackhammer, which, of course, is absurd. Uh, Lots and lots of people with pickaxes got put out of work over the course of decades because why would you hire a guy with a pickaxe if you could use a jackhammer? Well, if you're a radiologist, you need to accept the fact that a computer can read an X-ray better than you now and multiply that times a 1,000. If I can write down what you do, if I can write down the steps, I can get a computer to do it better than you. So the only plan is to do a job where you can't write down the steps. That's it. You need to do jobs where you can't write down the steps. And if you have a job where you do write down the steps, hire someone cheaper than you to do those steps so you can go back to doing a job where you can't write down the steps. That's fascinating. Yeah, and I I think that I love how you mention emotional labor so much. It's such a that that is such a, an advantage uh, as, especially when we're trying to start something or make a ruckus as you say, you know, it, is just putting that emotional labor into it. And I think that those are still things I don't think I know that no matter how intelligent robots get, even sentient, no matter how much they can move their eyebrows or whatever, like that creepy Sophie robot, um, they'll still never, ever have be able to demonstrate genuine empathy, ever. It's all manufactured. So I think that that emotional labor, putting, putting that emotional labor into something, having empathy for those you're doing it for, genuinely, I think those are some of the keys. Would you, would you agree? Would you have anything to add to that? Well, I do agree. I think, though, that faked empathy is just as good as real empathy, if I can't tell the difference. Oh, do, can you elaborate on that? Sure. I don't think you have to be in a wheelchair to design a hotel room that someone in a wheelchair can use. And that person who designed the hotel room may not care about you one bit. They might just be a professional. And to be a professional means to act as if. The surgeon who took your appendix out didn't show up and say, oh, I can't do it. I'm not really in a good mood. I don't really feel like doing surgery today. No, you don't care. You just want the surgeon to show up and do what she said she would do. That's what a professional would do. You know, if we think about the absurdity of Major League Sports, the players act like they care about the team, 
But as soon as they get traded, suddenly they care about a different team because they're professionals. And so I'm not arguing that you need to actually wake up in the middle of the night in cold sweats because you care so much about that human being you're exerting emotional labor for. I'm arguing that if you're a professional, it's your job. The ditch digger's job is to dig a ditch, and your job is to act as if. And if you can 100% fake the empathy, that's as good as actually being empathetic as far as I'm concerned. I love that. That is such a great takeaway. So you seem like a super mellow and happy guy, Seth. What makes you really angry? And Trump is off the table, by the way. (laughs) Uh, You know, I have a big problem when brands have a privilege and then they don't keep their promise. And it's hard for me to find empathy for organizations because they're acting like professionals. They've got money. They've got resources. They could have kept their promise and they didn't. And so when Google shut down RSS Reader, leaving you know millions of blogs and millions of blog readers behind, that was just a selfish short-term act of uh, not only non-empathy, but unprofessionalism. And there's nothing we can do about it. And lately I've been ranting without success about how Google puts my blog and lots of other people's blog in the promotions folder because they can, because it, it makes their monopoly even stronger. So I'm not sure I'd say that makes me angry because I have found that anger doesn't make me better, but it certainly makes me frustrated in the sense that I use it as fuel to try to help us make a new standard. Because the fact is, in our world, there's so much choice that we get the culture we accept. And if we don't want to accept it, all we have to do is speak up and it stops. And over time, if enough people speak up, then things change. And I get email almost every day from people who say, how can I get the people in charge to change what they're doing? And my answer is you should be in charge because you can get five or 10 or 50 or 100 people to follow you, so lead. So go. And that's where all the changes ever come from in our culture. And that's where the change is going to come from. Someone who cares enough to make a ruckus and to show up and raise their hand and say, here we go. So, you know, my book comes out this week or so in November and it's a call to arms. And the reason I made a book is because the book is the easiest thing I know that you can share with other people. And what I'm hoping will happen is that people will walk into the office with four copies and say, this, this is what we're going to do. That's why I wrote it as a book, and that's my mission. And if people want to see some samples, it's at seths.blog slash T-I-M. And my hope is that this ruckus I'm making will spread at least enough to make things a little better. Ah, I love that. I'm so glad you said that. And, you know, I have a blurb for you, Seth, if you need another one. Wink. You're very kind. (laughs) Here it goes. This book, and this is from the heart, my friend. This book clearly defines once and for all with an exclamation point what true marketing is and always should be ever empathic and in genuine service to the marketed. Wow. I'm honored. Thank you for the time you were able to spend with me today. This was a really fun conversation, and I can't wait to see the ruckus you're going to continue making and leading these professionals. Oh, thank you so much, Seth. I appreciate you so much, and keep doing what you're doing. Keep fighting on uh, in in all that you do. I am such a a beneficiary, so many others, and I know I'm excited to introduce you to any of the defenders listening who may not have heard of you. And uh, definitely, defenders, pick up Seth's book, It is incredible. It it will change you and change the way you see things. Thanks again, Seth, for being here, for all you do. And last but not least, I just want to say, fight on, my friend. All right, go make a ruckus. We'll see you. Seth is one of my favorite humans and one whose work has had a huge, or as he would say, huge impact on my career in life. As a reader of his inspiring daily blog for nearly 20 years, an eager recipient of his wisdom and viral ideas he pours into each of his incredible books, as well as a listener to his recently launched and highly recommended podcast, Akimbo, throughout the past year, I am humbled and honored to have had this opportunity to have Seth on the show. Seth is a guy who taught me the importance of showing up every day. 
of being generous and especially that any endeavor that is successful, at the core of it, there lies radical empathy. Seth's new book is called This Is Marketing. I got a chance to get an early copy and it's amazing. Defenders listening, you may think, why would I need a book on marketing? I'm not a marketer, I'm a designer. Marketing is for people who have that in their job title. Not so. The field of marketing is and always has been bosom buddies with the field of design. In fact, I'd be surprised if not unlike me, your work is either directly inside of a marketing department or very closely tied to it. We are all marketing ourselves all the time. Asking for a raise? Marketing. Trying to sell your design to stakeholders? That's marketing. Building a portfolio? Writing a blog? Sharing your ideas? That's marketing. You can buy Seth's new book, and I highly recommend you do, through my affiliate link in the show notes at userdefenders.com slash sethgodin. When you do, you'll be helping this podcast at no additional cost to you. Tweet your takeaways, Defenders. I'm at userdefenders, and Seth is not on Twitter. Also, be sure to check out my newly released One Week to Strong Empathy Challenge at userdefenders.com slash empathy. I want to thank Eli Jorgensen for the astonishing artwork. I love what he did with Seth Godin's iconic photo. Uh, he totally superheroized him, and uh, it's pretty amazing. So check it out at the show notes. Um, Eli, thanks so much for the consistently amazing artwork. Um, defenders, friends, I just want to thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I know sometimes I don't stop to do that enough to thank you. So this is the moment where I do that. I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being a valued listener and talking about the show, sharing it with your other designer friends and, um, and encouraging me too through iTunes reviews and even through emails and, and tweets. I, I just appreciate you so much. So thanks so much for listening and, uh, and being on this journey with me. You are why I do this. And last but not least, I just want to say, as always, fight on, my friends.